you have a different set of perspectives that you generate, each of which you place different percentages of value. And I, I, I believe I should do this 10%. I believe I should do that 20%. And then if you let someone else's advice take over the 50% threshold, they say, hey, you should go do that. And that becomes, you know, your 50% margin. That's where you get in troubles. Welcome back to episode 10 of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. I'm Joe with my co-host here, John, and today we're going to kick off a bit of an interesting conversation talking more about ourselves and where this podcast came from and why we are the way we are. Right. Yeah. And since we're in these double digits, episode 10 now, this is kind of our special blend of information a little bit on really what guides us into these conversation how do we develop a framework for thinking? And uh, we have basically two questions that we want to elaborate on today. Um, and they're pretty simple. The first one is, who are the certain uncertainty gurus? And what is our methodology? And the second, what is applied philosophy? Which is something that we really use as our center backbone to construct these conversational dialogues and to push us into directions that might feel uncomfortable at first, but at least at some level, help us find and identify some utility from the chaos of <laughs> too much information, perhaps. So yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of jump in it with you, Joe. Who are the certain uncertainty gurus and what is our methodology? Absolutely. So to give a little background as to why you and I are the way we are and what inspired us to be in this podcast and bring this into our lives and put this out for all of you, as well as how we come up with the episode ideas and what our inspiration was in creating the things that we decide to talk about. This has been one of the most popular questions we've had from everyone who knows about the podcast and has listened to it. And this will be kind of an opening up about you and I and why, why we are this way. So I can start off with kind of looking back on the, the earlier principles and what you said about applied philosophy that really inspired us to begin these conversations. And one of the core fundamentals that we found so fascinating in the way we weave these ideas into our lives is pure, first and foremost, absolute curiosity about everything. And I think why this was our, our cornerstone with beginning a lot of these ideas was having this innate curiosity for how all these things in the world operate, how these ideas are flourishing and coming into new ground and how we can take these ideas and put them into usable, actionable lifestyles into our life in the, in the goal of achieving this self-actualization and development process of fully understanding yourself and why you are the way you are. Yeah, and to, to somewhat build off of that, I would say the idea of applied philosophy really motivates us in that you often hear about a lot of these types of philosophies or rules, guidelines, uh, commandments, whatever the hell you want to call them. And the real question we have as curious individuals is, well, what is the validity of these statements? How often can we apply these rule sets as, as a way of deeper contemplating the nature of, of reality and understanding exactly what actually is useful in the context of a specific situation, scenario, or social outcome, economic outcome, um, and whatever new development may be. And the, the real question is that we don't live in a black and white environment. And so how then do we apply philosophy to the realm of the gray area, which is really where we exist in all of our different types of lifestyles. And so 
when we actually develop into these types of thinking styles, it's finding these realms of uncertainty and there's a lot of them. So, I mean, we have a lot of <laughs> a plethora of sectors to kind of navigate through and try to color in the dots or connect the dots, color in the circle, whatever you want to call it. And um, that's, that's what I would say is our applied philosophy is taking somewhat of a moral imperative on how people should guide themselves through their lives and to really evaluate whether or not these are imperatives or are they situational outcomes based on specific generational stimuli. For example, what types of technologies are in the environment that are influencing behavior in a specific way. Um, and, and then, well, how is that opportunity cost given the situation now changed as a relative metric from that? And from this, we can derive some type of philosophical variation into how we navigate through these realms. And this is something that I think guides us and something that we, as certain uncertainty people here on the show, are really passionate about. Yeah. And I think coming from a, a macro perspective, when, when we kind of ask ourselves the question, why are you and I the way we are? And I ask myself that question almost every single day, looking at my habits, looking at my interests, how my brain wraps around an idea and encapsulate it, encapsulates it into a rocket ship and then sees wherever that path takes me is, is really where a lot of these ideas come from. And as you've been able to tell from a lot of these episode titles and how we come up with ideas and talk about them, it's usually whatever has sparked our interest that week and has been the culmination of random thoughts coming in and out of our attention for years and years now, because our friendship goes back many years and now looking into how we can take an idea, plant it and see what kind of attention and nourishment you can give this idea in different climates and contexts, which is the framework of our own minds, figuring out how to take a somewhat simple or similar idea and apply it into something that is useful for your life. And I think coming into more specifics now, when we look at some of the actions of self-actualization, as well as this innate obsession with understanding the mechanisms of lifestyle in the brain and how we can utilize to our best ability this tool that we have at our at our uh, disposal to create create a reality and lifestyle for yourself that is truly fantastic and full of challenges but also full of really rewarding thoughts and ideas and accomplishments and I think that's the that's the second cornerstone as to like why we why we do this. And John, I'm curious to ask this question to you. What do you think was one of the most impactful ideas or philosophies that grabbed you at some, some level and has really been, uh, been internalized as a way that you operate? Right. To echo this idea, I would say for me, it stems down to an inherent level of utility that my biology has drafted out for me over however many millions of years. And, and my question is, well, are these biological components that have developed in the face of adversity, for lack of a better word, but are these, these components that I at some level take for granted, are they even still useful in the first place? Are, are the way that I sense the environment still useful? Is it actually true that what I'm seeing is a valid way, like physically seeing with my own eyeballs, is a valid way to describe the topography of the natural environment as a, as a way of describing contrast to myself? Because at, at some level, the observations that I then create are limited. And so when I, when I come back to this podcast, for me, it provides at least a medium in which I can verify that my observations have at any level some validity and that 
in a conversational dialogue, it's basically throwing a perceptive version of yourself, a model of reality that you call yourself for the duration of a conversation, throwing that into someone else's model, and then seeing how these two models interact together to then build a new model, which we call a unified communication tactic or something like that. And that's really what it comes down to is not necessarily to communicate for the sake of figuring out who's right and who's wrong, but to figure out what's a better way to think about this just as a starting point. And for me, when it comes down to conversing with Joe, we really want to figure out, because we have a lot of different perceptions on how these things and systems will work and a lot of different variables that potentially have gone underneath my radar and my sensory pathways that Joe's picked up on. And this provides at least that medium to figure out where the mismatches are, the variance in data collection. And this is really the central guiding why as to why we do this is to figure out if there's some inherent complexity in nature that really no one stumbled upon before. Is there a stone left unturned? And for us, it's really our goal to turn the stones. And it doesn't necessarily mean that turning all the stones will help us find the way back, but it might surely push us in a new direction. Um, and, and that's really the goal here in, in finding out new ways of thinking about very age-old ancient concepts from an anthropology context and now in a modern context as well. Um, so I'll, I'll pose the the question here uh, as we kind of continue through this. What is it about philosophy as a general whole that you find validating for the human experience? What's the point of generating these types of statements that we then use and try to validate throughout our own individual experiences that is promising? Because at some level, <laughs> a philosophy will always be proven wrong as we go through the future. And so what's the point of constantly coming up with things that are always going to be wrong? Well, I think what what really interests me is that when we talk about philosophies and ideas and how these new frameworks for different mindsets can help change people's lives, to me, those in and of itself are ideological masterpieces. It is, it is, a, it is a form of artwork to me when people have such a unique skill set and mindset and background and their internal interpretation of a lifestyle and reality manifests its way into this piece of, of literature or artwork or a story. And I think to me, that's, that's the coolest part of all of this. It, it is probably one of my obsessions is reading through the ideas that someone had thought through and put their, their, their whole life into and taking these philosophies from the greats that have written books over the past hundreds of years, as well as to modern day thinkers now who come up with things that are specific to, to the way we live and what other factors are most prevalent and impacting to our life right now. And when I review these things and look at these and read them, I try and think about how our small lives, which in the grand scheme of things, they're just we're just a couple other people fit into this, this framework, this structure. How can you take an idea from 250 years ago and turn it into something useful and productive that can change the way you live now in that, in that context in itself, that's unbelievable that you have an idea that has spanned centuries and is now impacting your life now because someone hundreds of years ago thought through the depths of this idea and about existence and about analyzing the way people are and asking the questions, why? At the very base level, how many times can we ask why to figure out who we are, why we're like this, why we make these decisions and, and pretty much walk around with a, a metaphysical mirror in front of you all the time to like review yourself. 
the purpose is non-arrival, but rather an approach. Yes. Yep. And this could be boiled down to some artistic representation of the mind, maybe. I think it was what you're what you're saying. And that's the beauty of it. It doesn't have to be right, because I mean, what is right at the end of the day? What is it to mean to to work? Is it is it that it works for this amount of demography? Well, if you scale it up to this level, well then at that scaled level, there's still going to be some gaps where it doesn't work for some people. So the purity of a philosophical idea will always fail. And so therefore, in this context, the way you're saying it is that as long as you have some kind of philosophy that's constantly building on it, that in itself is an artistic representation of of a person's life. And that should be a goal in itself to, to the pursuit of some creative mastery of your own individual interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the best quotes that I kind of heard, it's very, very simple, but it goes back to just say that existence is both the duality of beauty and suffering. And it's a very poetic form of approach looking at life, but that is truly what, what life oscillates between. It is a pattern of oscillating between periods of beauty and creation and art and emotion, but also aspects of suffering and earning the other side of that coin back and forth for however many decades and generations that you feel these, these things come and go within your life. But going into what I think are, are some of the, the core roots of this, this podcast and this show are, are truly our obsessions with things Mm -hmm. and things that exist and ideas that come up that we feel that are not talked about enough or in detail or maybe in our specific generation and who who we've associated with in the past there are there are ideas that have these fundamental depths to them that our our controlled insanity has to find the answers to or at least find a path to and see if there even is an answer and that's what the goal of this podcast is and how we come up with these ideas is picking a a point way off in the darkness and the distance and seeing if our minds can come together to come to some sort of a solution or an applied answer to these, these great problems and and stories that exist. Mm -hmm. The one thing I want to say on that is that in this process of striving for some artistic mastery is the actual striving, the, the obsession, is that something conscious? Is that something you can train yourself to be obsessed with, or is it something that kind of boils down in your, your epitome of self that then manifests into your conscious domain? In other words, obsession with a specific set of philosophy or the desire to, um, build some practical model out of philosophy. Is that come down from the root of who we are, or is it more of this conscious appeal that we've kind of arisen? Like, Hey, it's great to be obsessed with something. Let's just pick one. Or is it really in, in, in our hearts? Like, okay, I'm obsessed with it. I have no idea why, but we're just going to keep, you know, meandering down this or not meandering, but you know, sprinting perhaps. (laughs) No, I think it's definitely unconscious. Yeah. I think people who have the, the fortunate reality of recognizing their obsessions and what grabs them and truly just carries them forward with brute force is an unconscious obsession with with different ideas. And I think that manifests itself in a lot of the stories that you've heard from some of the most prolific and famous writers and actors and inventors and scientists of, of today's and, and honestly historical eras is the core principle of listen to yourself and what it is that you really care about. And those people are usually the ones who talk about staying up till four in the morning every day. And they, they truly can't let go. And they're, they're obsessed and they work 70 to 80 hours a week minimum on these ideas that truly grab hold of them. And I think that 
that's something that's honestly really difficult and challenged in today's society is that a lot of people have have subdued that that feeling of obsession and it can come come in a lot of different forms but i mean you hear about them somewhat regularly where people go through a decade or more of a career and then say i always wanted to be a, a painter or a cook a chef um an artist of some sort where they had this innate deep passion and obsession with something that was not supported or validated or a pathway to a, a clear reward in that structure and a lot of people I feel like more often than not choose not to follow their passion and their obsessions which sounds so simple but it, there's so many depths to the the psychology of why they do that mm, yeah i'll play a little devil's advocate here so what would you say to the individuals that do have that unconscious obsession but perhaps as an excuse they would say well i can't make any money out of that right i i, I won't be able to support my livelihood and the way that i've set up this life infrastructure for myself currently because, you know, I've spent all these years building an infrastructure of life on this amount of dollars and whatever currency you use. And when I actually would make that transition to change to that root obsession and how would you say, well, you just got to do it, you know, even if there isn't that certainty of, of income that comes with it. And I think this is really where the, the challenge is in, in some people's minds that, okay, I have this obsession, I've identified it, that was the easy part. The, the real question is how do I make a livelihood out of it? How do I make money out of it? And I'd be curious to hear what you said. I have, I have some thoughts on it as well, but. I think it's a really challenging process, but at the, the beginning, I would say you have to almost destroy your ego. And I think, this has been a topic that we've kind of brushed on in the past, talking about personality characteristics and traits and the establishment of an ego and do we actually have one. But I think in the colloquially understood definition of ego, you have to destroy it. And if there's something that you're truly passionate about, that will be a trailblazing journey for yourself and your community of friends that you have, that it's something truly unique. There is no clear path of success. There's no clear path of reward financially or um, intrinsically, it, it in itself must be a process of not caring or not allowing the perspectives of others to hinder your, your perceived success in this field. And I think the people who truly feel that would tell others, if you need to be motivated to do this thing, don't do it. Right. And, and the spectrum that I, that I'm looking on is that you can spend an entire life in blismal comfort, but you're not scratching those itches that make you who you think you are. And that's what really matters. Who the hell do you think you are? It's not about what other people think you are. It's about who the hell do you think you are? And you can spend an entire lifetime doing what other people say is you. And then you get down to the very end of it and you've spent a whole livelihood building that infrastructure for yourself in, in, in nice comfort or whatever. But what lasts from you? what is the legacy that lives on after you, right? And, and, and not necessarily going into those realms of the dark that, that you've always wanted to in your life. Well, what's the point in not doing that? Because you only have that one time, you only have one life to actually figure this stuff out and actually produce something that you find valuable and interesting to the world and, and making that contribution in a very individualistic way. And, and so it's like, you have to broaden your own time scale as to the influence that your abilities will make in the world. And if, if you say, okay, well, I don't necessarily want to make any influence in the world, that's okay. 
as long as you find fulfillment in building some valued system that you have created for yourself. Uh, and that's the challenge is like, well, then how much is it that I actually place my efforts in making others happy versus myself? Because it is a mutualistic process. There's the emotional support mechanisms that go into, you know, uh, making other people happy and then that becoming a validating system to support yourself and to continue doing what you're doing. And so it's kind of like a mixture of it's a hybrid model, right? And this is the whole idea where these, this applied philosophy comes in, in handy. It's like, okay, well, we have this gray area that we're constantly surrounding in and it's like, well, what rule system do I create for myself? What, what guiding book? And, you know, we've talked about this in a lot of podcasts and I won't go into it right now exactly what we would say, but there's, these are questions that you must ask yourself is what are the weighted distributions of, of effort within each one of these sectors that I care about? Um, and that's the tough part, right? Because I mean, how many variables are you even capable of conceiving in, in the equation initially? And chances are you're going to exclude a variable set that is extremely important into drafting future decision making as, as to how you reach your obsessive obsessions and so forth. And, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll let you get a word in on that. Well, I think an interesting point that you brought up is, is the perspective of what could you be versus what should you be? And I think that's a question a lot of people probably don't ask themselves and really try and ideate through to the answers because a lot of people have a framework from what they've seen around them and their parents and previous generations and their friends. And almost everybody has this idea of what should you be, you know, the family person, the career sustaining a job to fulfill some goals. But there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with what could you be and asking yourself this question and really going through this difficult process of trying to come to the answer and and understand what your goal structures are what your individual principles are and why they matter asking and writing down clearly principles that you follow and having the extreme discipline to follow them is not easy it is not an easy decision to make. It's not a comfortable decision to make. It is rewarding in the long term, but it is certainly not rewarding in the short term. And trying to figure out what could you be is almost a painful decision to go through as these frameworks and pathways that have been developed already are sitting right in front of you. And I think this is something that we frequently talk about in our own personal development and why we're working at the certain careers and jobs that we have. And then from there, what we hope to work toward in the future. And I'm curious from, from your perspective, do you have a set of principles or a guiding principle that you could articulate into something that kind of acts as a North star for the way you carry out decisions? The simple answer to that is that perhaps counterintuitively, don't overvalue advice. And this is the hardest thing to kind of master in that you should never have someone else's advice take place as the majority in your mind as, uh, for example, you have a different set of perspectives that you generate, each of which you place different percentages of value. And I, I, I believe I should do this 10%. I believe I should do that 20%. And then if you let someone else's advice take over the 50% threshold, they say, hey, you should go do that. And that becomes, you know, your 50% margin. That's where you get into troubles. That's where you get into problems as to, well, did I choose that? Did I choose that for myself? And if you didn't, then you're going to run into problems because you're never going to actually be able to trust yourself 
to actually make the decisions in the future that are very, very crucial that you need to make and no one else needs to make. And this is the problem with taking advice, just to, to kind of summarize on that point. It's and in the same vein as, as, as we had offer some level of advice in these podcasts and some way of thinking of it, don't let them become a majority in your own thinking pattern. Because at the end of the day, we are simply two individuals of almost 8 billion humans on this planet that are constantly struggling to figure out exactly what a perceived reality could and should be. And so that's my, my one guiding principle is that at every level, the skeptic must be able to understand their own skepticism. And, and so that means, you know, at the same time as you don't want the advice to become a majority, you also don't want it necessarily to become a minority just because it's from an external perspective. As in, don't don't completely devaluate other people's experiences, but be able to be aware of the decisions you could make and, and recognize that they're probably pretty bad ones and that some advice could be better than that one. But at the end of the day, you do want one decision that has a majority of you in it. And as long as you do that, I, I think you can really understand how to apply these philosophies to yourself. So do you think there's more bad advice available now than there is good advice compared to points in the past because I try and try and figure out why there are so much noise almost like a signal to noise ratio of of advice and lifestyles there's hundreds if not thousands of personal development self-development self-help whatever you want to call that genre of books there are thousands of them now but most of them probably say damn near the same thing and there's only a few at the top at the top last standard deviation or, or uh, the top couple percent that are truly life-changing books or pieces of information. Why do you think there's so much noise today? So there's a couple of different ways I would evaluate this. One would be to first look at the self-help industry as a whole, as a, as a book writing and as a media content producing agency, and to look exactly how their revenue growth stacks up relative to the rest of the population. And I think they've reached a point where they're now licensing out self-help and uh, self-help information to pretty much the entire population now within America, at least. And so with that being said, if everyone's getting equal access to the self-help opportunities, if, if they were actually working, you would expect the self-help industry to actually decline in revenue in my eyes. And that, well, once you've understood a, a very core aspect of a philosophy, well, then you don't necessarily need to read about it again. Unless, of course, that philosophy didn't actually work that well. Then you would need to go back to the books, go back to the self-help industry and make more money there, right? And it's like, you know, you can only consume so much true philosophy, is, 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 the, is the kind of thing. It's like, there's, there's only so much things that are actually known to be true. And, and there's not that much. You could fill out a little note page of, of the things that are true. <laughs> and that's the, the funniest part of it. And that's what I find very ironic about the self-help industry, because if it was truly self-help, it would actually be you know declining in my eyes, at least at some level. But I guess to approach it from the other perspective now, do you think there are more people who need the self-help industry? Right, and that's and the question. Why? That's that's the question. If if there's more people that need help than have actually been helped, then 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 my what I'm thinking is is completely flawed and not true. Um, and that's the 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 one counter argument. And I do think people need more help, and I do think there's a lot more advice out in the industry and and out in the world. Uh, the question as to whether or not it's good advice is case by case. <laughs> and, and that's the biggest problem too, is because what you can find out of a self-help book at a specific time is a reminder about something. Usually this is what it comes down to, because there's a lot of different central philosophies that can guide you, but you might forget about some of them. And this is kind of the, the 
self-help of the redundancy itself. Sometimes you need to be reminded of why this is even a good lesson, why these core principles, these core traditions that you followed your entire life are actually true because you've, you've been using them for so long, you've forgotten to really go back and, you know, cross out all the all the wrong answers again as to why that is the best thing to do and and why that is a tradition and to take a a central thought is that i think when it comes down to america i think some people have forgotten what the traditional understanding of america is just just in that vein as well and in this you know not to gravitate into the political side of things but I, I, you just see people arguing on, on, on all sides of the political spectrum that America stood for this and America stood for that. And it's like, hey, we can we can actually go back and read, you know, like, let's go read what it actually stood for. And, and I don't think people are actually reading into those nitty gritty details anymore. And I think that's the problem is they'll take superficial advice because it doesn't require too much time or effort to actually absorb it. And so you get a lot of these low hanging fruit pieces of advice that are, are, you know, already ready to spoil, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. And I think a lot of the kind of new ideas and circulation of ideas that we can kind of formulate around now beg the question of the length of usability. And I'm sure there were numerous other pieces of literature and philosophies and ideas that existed at the same time. Some of these documents from the greats were written, but they didn't have as profound an impact on the population and the spread of ideas. So they did not persist through time like these ones that we still have today are. And when I look at ideas that persist through time and going off the point you said about fundamental truths and how many of them we actually can discover and how many are left to discover, that's a really interesting question. Because when we look at fundamental truths that are not uh, arguable or do not have a contrapositive or other factors that rely upon those to be true in order for this philosophy to be true, there are not an infinite number of them, firstly, but also secondly, how many different ways can you interpret fundamental truths? And to not get too much into the abstract ideation of fundamental truths, I want to look at how we consume information as well as we consume and spread ideas now that either align with or are perpendicular to this flow of, of gravitating toward fundamental truths. And I think a lot of our ideas and things that we kind of revolve around are perpendicular to fundamental truths. They don't actually have a core foundation in the backing or establishment of an idea. They instead are acting as contrapositives to fundamental truths interpreted in a way that you are supposed to almost inherit an idea instead of create an idea. Hmm. I think the problem might be that philosophy doesn't also come with a statement of conditionals. You you say a statement and that's what it is. It doesn't say, you don't say, if this, then this. Like right? a standalone. Like in, like in a coding world, you would say, okay, you'd have this list of, of different philosophical ideas, discrete philosophical ideas that would be applied in specific conditional statements. And when we, when we communicate, that doesn't inherently apply because there is no conditionality that that is being communicated within these these reign, these these reigns it's like we need a different way a different format of, of expressing the conditionality to then express the variance of the philosoph philosophical idea in the first place and that's the biggest tough because then you have to go through each of the different situations and validate accordingly and you can do this anecdotally and come up to your own philosophies based on your own anecdotal experiences and this is why it can be shocking when someone tells you hey this is what i believe and you're like well how the hell did that work for you it didn't work for me 
Like who's wrong, right? Well, it's like, okay, well, what are the conditional statement trees? How do these things flow through these things? And, and maybe, maybe the, the central philosophy is not, if this is true, it's, it's all these things are true. And that is the philosophy is the variance itself. The truth is inside that variance tree. And that's the hardest thing is that how can, how can a philosophical idea take many, many different forms and still be the same thing? Exactly. Yes. Yes. And off of, off of that, that idea, it, it makes me evaluate where we came up with a lot of these ideas. But then also when we look at the, the level of intelligence that these people had who wrote and created these ideas and formulated them into little packets of usable knowledge, I'm, I'm absolutely just blown away by the depth and quality of some of these ideas and compare them to other forms of geniuses. When we look at the great mathematicians like Einstein and the people of history, John von Neumann, all of these brilliant physicists and engineers. And most people are very aware of the level of intelligence and IQ that was required for them to create and implement these mathematical, physical products and ideas, right? They're, they're known to be very complex and difficult. And we see the exact process of use cases, of growth, of application for their ideas. But it's a much more blurry, covered, shrouded pathway when we look at philosophers like Freud and Jung and Kierkegaard, and you could name all of them. When you quantify their IQ and the level of genius that was required to formulate an idea and frame it as they did, and then try and follow the path of where their great philosophies influenced people who have accomplished spectacular things today. It's so difficult because we don't look at a product like, like nuclear engineering or technology, computation, semiconductors, all of which are products of geniuses coming up with mathematical feats. But we don't look at geniuses who have referenced or credited young with their intellectual development expanding into a great new product. And, and to somewhat come back to the why we do this podcast and to tie into some of the things you, you're discussing is when we ask the question, who are the modern day philosophers? you'll be confronted with a pretty puzzling question because it's like, well, who are they? I mean, like, and, and this is where it comes down to, are geniuses realized in the time in which they were alive? Or can a genius really only be realized in the time they're not alive? And when we go back and think as to why these people were great, it's that it becomes a question of how long has the idea withstood the test of time? What is the classical sense of, of the philosophy in itself? And, and this is where it gets challenging because we could be surrounded by a bunch of people that someday some people could consider genius in their own right. And yet, why is it that we don't, why is it that we can't realize that? Is it because we need the empirical information to validate it? I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do we know a philosophical idea is great when it's created? How do we validate a modern philosophy as something that should be even worthwhile to consider in the sense that it's only stood out in the daylight for a few moments? I think that's a great idea. I think it's not necessarily after death that it can be accredited with being a genius level idea, but it certainly needs some minimum time of existence and propagation in a community or an intellectual framework for it to be fully compounded into 
the application or the quality of that idea. But looking at some of the geniuses today and answering the question or trying to answer the question, who are the modern day philosophers? It's really difficult because there's more noise now than there has ever been in history when it comes to the spread of information and claimed, self-proclaimed intellectual ideologies and ideas. It is so difficult to try and evaluate the quality of an idea without having a strong foundation in the history of all the previous ideas, which is the most difficult part, which is why I think so much information and poor advice are spreaded and accepted today is because in order to determine that poor quality of an idea or piece of, of advice, you have to benchmark it against tons of historical data of ideas that were also great or very poor. And it's almost impossible to do that. So you need a very, very specific directed framework in order to benchmark all the new signal that everyone is receiving at every minute of every single day in order to somehow validate this feed forward mechanism of understanding if an idea is worthy of being internalized in your mind, in your life or not. And it's really, really challenging. And that's part of the reason why we created this podcast is to answer these questions from our perspective. We have a very niche approach in the way we internalize and create some of these ideas. And we try and explain why they matter to us, why they're important. And we hope that whoever listens to this can try and answer that question for themselves of why this matters to you and how you can Go into the world with a new set of tools in your tool belt, in this toolkit, which comprises your emotions and your mind and your lifestyle, and look at events that you would have experienced otherwise with a new set of glasses and a new framework to try and piece together something that can be regarded as genius or regarded as, as something that you should not give any more daylight to. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just to kind of wrap up here, kind of approaching the end, I want to echo some thoughts as to some of the ways we can evaluate these philosophies then and, and kind of build out two different variables that are highly correlated. And I think right now there's a delusion to assess philo- philosophical validity on population. So as population as a function in which we can assess how many other people have taken in this idea and does does then that philosophical idea have any more weight and validity based on how many people uh, actually enact that philosophy or is it that you could have a very select group of individuals only a couple right and as long as through generations that philosophical idea lasts in terms of time not population in terms of time then you might be able to come to some other understanding of validity of philosophy. And I, I don't know the answer. I mean, because, I mean, it is a popularity contest at some level to see just how many people can jump on board with the, with a thing, but at the same time, it needs to work <laughs> over a time-based period. And so there's that issue of both scalability of the idea and then the, the time-based idea. And, and I would say, you know, as a general note, things that become very, very popular, very, very quick tend to die pretty quickly. I mean, like, you know, whenever I look at any, very genius artist, like for example, Van Gogh, when he was one of the most unpopular artists while he was alive. And yet, you know, a few decades later, he was labeled as a genius, a philosophical artist. And I just have very, very severe questions as to why that, that happens and, and how we can somewhat understand before, before time actually plays out, whether or not these ideas should be considered beforehand, whether or not Van Gogh's art should have been considered in the first place and, and all that good stuff. And, you know, 
That's a, that's an interesting question. And I think it, it begs a lot of historical context as well as understanding the cultural implications of that period. And that is incredibly impactful, not only to looking at history, but also looking at the current modern situations that we're in is what are our cultural implications and how do these reflect upon the ideas which we are capable of perceiving and also capable of communicating. And it's a really, really, really challenging topic that I think a lot of us subconsciously know that exists all the time. And it it really has to work itself selectively into a framework of how you create an idea. Mm. I'll, I'll end with this last question then, uh, as we're getting at the end. And I think it's something that you should definitely consider, which is, are great philosophical ideas ones that are always ahead of the curve? Probably, yes. I'm not going to go too far into answering this question, but we will leave you with this question. All right. Well, thank you all. This has been episode 10. Hopefully you enjoyed this kind of special background on our own philosophies for guiding these conversations in this podcast as a whole. And uh, stay tuned for next week, episode 11. Thanks, everyone. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.